Mine's an obituary. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> In a good way. I'll find, like, the most sexiest photo I have. It could be that. I'll put it at the end. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you. All we didn't even recording. do introduction, but everyone's. Did you want to do an introduction? Because that saves me time. Okay, then. Well, you can, you can do yours, and then Eva can do hers, and then okay. mine. Oh, okay. So I'll do mine. Uh, hello uh, and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. Today's conversants are Eva Kurilova and Lois, the Duchess. Uh, that's her Twitter title. Just a few days ago, Lois expressed her deep discontent with the path of medical transition that she underwent, including hormones and what is colloquially called or euphemistically called bottom surgery and the persistent issues that she has with man-made simulations of female sex organs and that the Canadian medical industry is just not serving her well and that she has now applied to maids which is medical assistance in dying which is a voluntary euthanasia program that is going on up in canada that tweet that she wrote went rather viral gained a lot of attention and she was kind enough along with her friend Eva to join me to speak more about her reasoning behind deciding to utilize Canada's medical industry to facilitate her checking out. Without further ado, here is Eva and Lois. Yes. Hi, I'm just Lois. So I'm a sterilized First Nations post-op transsexual woman of 14 years living in Alberta on Treaty Six territory. Is that good? I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Fabulous. Okay. My Fancy. turn. Yeah, Eva. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Eva. Eva Kurlova. You may know me as Canada's preeminent lesbian on Twitter, and I do some writing. And I'm just here as a friend to talk. <laughs> huh. How'd you guys meet? Oh. On tw Twitter. Yeah, in 2019. Yep. Yeah, late was 2019. Like an, like an outbreak of, of communication in uh, the, what, what, Alberta? Is it Alberta or Calgary? No, Calgary's in Alberta. What, what's I, the I'm in Calgary. We're in Alberta. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, we just, I, I don't, I'm not sure how we started talking. Um, we were in the same general space, right? Gender critical Twitter. And uh, we just kind of hit it off. You tend to do that, we, Eva. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know she's her energy and everything just makes you just fall in love with her real fast. Stop it. That's what I would say about you. <laughs> but no, we, we started talking. I remember one moment that really stood out to me was when I was shopping for a jacket and I was asking Twitter, you know, should I get this? And there was like a mixed opinion, but you messaged me, I think. And you were like, oh, yeah, you should totally get this. It makes you look like you own a country club or something like that. And I was, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? I still have it. Yes, I remember. I'm like, that one gives a um, country, country, um, no, country estate vibes. A country estate like vibes. Yes. That's what it was. And I, I, I'm sure we were talking before that, but I was like, okay, this person's really cool and I'm going to get this jacket. <laughs> country estate. So would you be the lady of the estate or would you be like the gardener or like the tennis coach? I, no, you, she she looked like she had old money with that jacket. So I'm like, oh, she said. owned. You remember? She owns a country estate. 
That's exactly what you said. And so I was like, I have to get this. And then we actually did lose touch when I had my little Twitter break. Uh, I know, I was it was so long. Yeah. It, was, it was over a year. Because you also, like, I couldn't find you. I looked for you on other social media. Um, and I didn't know your full name. So Even I, I don't know my full name. What? <laughs> it's not the one you put on the packages you sent to me? It is. It is. Packages? Uh, illicit? Uh, frozen meats, maybe? <laughs> no, no. Really nice uh, sweet grass and sage and... Oh, okay. Uh, lots of blessed things. Are you an herbalist, Lewis? Um, I know I'm spiritual with a holistic approach. And is that, uh, of your first nations, uh, background, your lineage, your native American? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How close are you to that tradition and which tradition or which tribe? Just, I'm with the Cree nation. Like we expand real far. Like treaty six alone goes into Saskatchewan and then parts of Manitoba. So that's three provinces. So like I'm from Treaty 6 and then where um, Eva is, that's Treaty 7 territory. Oh, right. Yeah, they always say that in the land acknowledgements. That's why. Exactly. It means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It means nothing. They're like, ah, ha, ha, we're on your land and we're not going anywhere. So <laughs> I know. And that's what my <laughs> band is currently dealing with is uh, getting back our land. So in between my my band and surrounding areas, that's, that was all ours. And the 100-year lease agreement is up. So what does that mean for the counties that surround us? I don't know. Okay. And how close are you integrated into, I guess, your band as opposed to what is the correct terminology for... Th the settlers, I guess, the Canadians. The settlers, just society in general. Yeah. Well, to me, it's like there are some people that feel like they're navigating two worlds. And to me, it's just I've been living this way for so long, so it just feels natural. And I don't point the finger at anyone because growing up, I am like I'm part white. So I know my white side. And I know my native side, but I'm, I live on a reserve, I'm full status. So to me, it's just completely normal navigating or being part of, uh, being part of a first nations community and then society in general. Yeah. I think you do that really well. I think you sort of manage both pretty effortlessly from what I can yeah, see. I can, well, because that's, like, I grew up, like I said, I grew up, like, knowing my white side. It was completely normal, like, regardless of my skin color. I was just, like, that was normal to me. I didn't see color. Mm -hmm. It was your yeah. grandma? Your grandpa that was from Europe. Yeah, my, my Guido. Yeah. That's grandpa in Ukrainian. Ukrainian. Right? Was from Austria. Austria. He was a Austrian-Ukrainian. And when we'd ask him about the old country, he didn't want to talk about the old country. And like, you know, us being curious kids, like we want to know about the old country, like where you came from. 
But then when he died, then we knew what the old country was, and that was Austria. So it's like, whoa. When did he immigrate? In the 40s. Okay. So in the middle yep. of the war. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And did he leave... Uh, did you guys get to learn more about his story and what he went through to get here and uh, what he left behind? No, he didn't want to talk about the old country. He said it wasn't a good place. So, and then him growing up during the war, I could understand, but then that leaves us like, well, like, where do we come from? Sure, it's Vienna, Austria, but like, what does it look like for my family there exactly so have you been able to get in contact with uh, your relatives uh in europe see we i i, I don't know and okay wow. the austrian embassy you could submit paperwork to get um your family history in a sense i know about that process right i'm kind of scared I, I don't want to know too much about austria during that time yeah Decisions were made. Exactly. Yeah. But you know a lot about your other side of your family, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because where we are now on the reserve has always been in my family, but it extended to a lake that's not far from us. And then during um, when, okay, I don't know how to word it. So when the reserve was created, our family was written out. And then it was replaced with another family that has land claims, Summers out. So this has always been in our family before the reserve was established. Wait, it's very interesting because... Established? Before the reserve, the Indian reserve was established by the agents and the government. When? Like 70s, 60s, 50s, 20s? Uh, 1800s. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. What's the, um, I guess, the overview of the uh, the culture, your, your culture, your, your Native American culture, like the, the values or uh, like uh, the stories and, and the mythology? I, just in brief, just so I can understand how you grew up and how you look at the world. Well, well I grew up like living off land, like we're one with nature. Yeah. So... Like I, my cookum, his grandmother and Cree, um, she taught me so much, so much stuff. Like how to pick sweet grass, pick uh, Saskatoons, how to, um, on what, um, how to clean deer, fish, and she was a residential school survivor herself, and yet she was teaching us the next generations. The native way, if you will. And uh, those reservation schools. Um, so in brief, I don't know much at all, but I assume that either the government or uh, some sort of missionaries uh, set up these schools to uh, reculturate uh, the native population into European ways. Is that kind of basically what happened? And how many generations of your family uh, were subject to that? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure about my great-grandparents, but I know my Muslim cookum, grandpa and grandma, and a couple of my aunts and uncles uh, went to that residential school, and that residential school 
uh, last year had the school grounds radared for unmarked graves. You'll know that soon, right? The results. Yeah. And like, I'm kind of anxious about that because like, that's our history. Like that's what my grandparents survived. That's what my aunt survived. And when she told me the stories of her experience, that ruined Christmas for me. Really? I'm like, whoa. Just this past Christmas? No, the Christmas before. Oh. So 2021. What was the Because she came down. Uh, well, she, well, well, she came down for um, a family funeral, an extended family member. I didn't know this person. So she came down for her her funeral. And then because of the discoveries and everything happening within... 2021 so then she started talking about it because it was always on the news and she said i'll never forget the crying babies and when they would stop we knew what had happened to those babies and like i had to like choke back tears i'm like i i, I can't cry and she's sharing the story it's intense, and this is reality. And, like, that's the residential school that, you know, my family went to, and those babies stopped crying for a reason. And then there are stories at the residential school they used to throw them in the furnace or put them in the walls or bury them. And they would thump the babies. So, like, that was, like, a lot to hear on, like, the month of Christmas. So, it, it did ruin Christmas for me because that was such a heavy, a heavy story with truth. Yeah, and it just, I was so depressed the entire Christmas, but I witnessed that. Mm -hmm. I guess she had to talk about it, right? I guess she felt like she had to. Exactly, and hurt yeah. more that it happened to my aunt, my favorite aunt. Your favorite aunt. Yeah. And then my dad, my dad was a day scholar, and my mom was 60 scoop. So there's a lot of trauma. What's a day scholar? A day scholar is someone who goes to, um, a, in a sense, a residential school, but they go home during the day. Okay. So it's still run by the church or the government. When were those uh, disbanded? Are they still around? I hope not. I uh, know they disbanded. My dad went in the 60s and 70s. We know, he, yes, he went in the 60s and 70s to one of the day schools. And this was a time, like, his mom and dad had to get passports to leave the reserve. And during his time as a day scholar, they had to be driven or walked to the end of the reserve to be picked up by the buses to be taken to day school. And then how, how did your schooling proceed then? Oh, my school was like just regular old public school. So everything changed. But On the reserve? Some, like, no, off reserve. I went off to reserve. A, yeah, I went off reserve and then I came back to on reserve that's a different story but well, yeah everything off reserve it was like normal 
Like I had my white friends, my native friends. So at the time it was like 80% white and 20% native. And it totally switched now. So now it's like 80, 80 to 90% native and then 20 to 10% white. The school that you went to? Yeah. Where Where is that? Near Edmonton or? No, it's near the reserve here. It's about 15 okay. minutes off reserve. Okay, yeah. not too far. Okay. Yeah. And when you were in school, there was minimal racial tensions? Uh, yes. I didn't experience it from, like, the white people, but it was more about my own people. Like a distrust of the whites? Well, no, it was like, no, it was internal fighting. So certain people don't see me as native because I'm part white. So I might as well just be all white to them. And that same attitude wasn't from the whites. No. And then they were, I had, so I have so many friends (laughs) that are like, they're just cool. I don't know. Just there's this different culture that you have to be a hundred percent like native. You have to be pure bloods. I've even heard that you're not a pure blood. Really? I, I really would have thought that a lot of people had some, like, white heritage. Uh, I didn't realize that it was such a such an issue. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, but I'm just as native, native as you guys. But then growing up as a teenager and exploring my Ukrainian route, especially with food, and then having babas, like, oh, this is how you cook it, this is how you do it, like, kind of, like, their nose up. I'm like, I know. My keto taught us, like, how to cook. And they're like, oh, you're part Ukrainian. I'm like, yeah. And then the whole, like, attitude changes. I'm like, I'm not white enough to be, like, white. I'm not brown enough to be brown. Like, and then I was being labeled a half-breed. I'm like, well, what the hell's a half-breed? Why do I have to be a half-breed? This is Harry Potter. This is straight out of Harry Potter. (laughs) Exactly. I think J.K. Rowling wrote my life story. Yeah, half-breeds and purebloods. For context, what is the relationship, uh, or what did you learn about gender in your own culture? Like, what is the relationship between uh, the male and the female, the masculine and the feminine, and how you... uh, dealt with that and uh your kind of your gender journey in relationship to tribal knowing and uh your own unique multicultural multi-ethnic genetics culture uh well with my culture it's very gendered based so you have men's ceremonies women's ceremonies so it doesn't matter what your gender identity is or your um sexuality is if you're a man you're a man if you're a woman you're a woman and you do those ceremonies. And it's like, it's honestly really sad when I think about it, is that it dies with me. Why would you say that? Or what, what, what makes you say that? Well, because with the Native culture, there's certain things that are passed down from father to son, father to son, etc. So, and then there's certain... Um, I, spiritual items or ceremonial items that can't be passed down to me. I'm like, they can't die with me. So you're going to have to find somebody else who could carry on this, this gift. 
And were you aware that that was something that you were sacrificing uh, by transition? No, I never even thought about that oh, wow. yet. Okay. I was part of my culture. I was experiencing yeah, my culture, but I, I, I wasn't really that into it or that deep into it at the time. So it wasn't even in consideration until it was done until years later when I was finding myself and peace. Yeah. Where did the gender trouble start for you? Was it persistent from childhood? Yes. Was it, um, there's two kind of basic from what I've learned from these interviews. There's kind of two kind of basic relationships. One, the desire to be the opposite sex and mm -hmm. the disgust with one's physical sex. You know, those are like, there's a push and a pull. So how was it for you? Well, it was the disgust of having male genitalia. Like, that's where my dysphoria came from. And honestly, talking about it, I really don't want the TRA to know, like, that's what gender, gender dysphoria is. It's not about playing dress up and make believe. It's the discomfort that your body, your body is like the discomfort caused by your body. And was it a visual thing or pre-puberty, pre you'd see this thing and like, that doesn't belong here? Like, what's the... No, pre-puberty, uh, pre it was something was broken. I was broken. I didn't feel like a normal boy. Like, I, I just didn't feel normal within the body that I had. And were you given an opportunity like, to, to talk about that or to express that experience? No, this was the 90s. You didn't say, okay. you didn't say nothing. So, like, and there wasn't, I didn't find a word for it until I was in my late teens. And what was that word? Transgender. Okay. Yeah. And what about that concept was attractive, or thrilling, or uh, interesting to you? It was like, oh, it's, it's a word. It's, that describes me, what I've been feeling all these years. It was an onset. It was like, it, I was feeling this this soul-crushing uncomfort. Like, I couldn't describe until I found it was Oprah. And Oprah had a transgender person on there. I'm like, ah, that's me. Like, oh, sorry. And then, yeah, so then I had to look into it once the internet started picking up and we were able to access information. That's how old we are before the internet, my goodness. Yeah. yeah, we're a dying breed, those who remember before times. Yeah, I remember. And what were your steps after the information? Did you? There, I guess there was no gender clinics per se, but I know that there's gender doctors up in Canada, like Ken Zucker and Ray Blanchard and stuff in Toronto. But what was your uh, steps towards uh, professional? How did you interact with professionals? With this. Well, as soon as I turned 18, like I was an adult and I was able to seek this on my own. Okay. So I talked to my family doctor and he actually knew of a specialist, a, a specialist in gender identity disorder out of the Grey Nuns in Edmonton, Alberta. And he died. His name is Dr. Lorne Wernicke. How was he to you? He was actually, he was absolutely amazing. He even helped me, well, he diagnosed me with anxiety. I knew I had anxiety and helped 
me manage it. Not through medication, but still. Yeah. And so was it a mixture of uh, psychiatry and uh, uh, psychology, uh, your, your treatment, your therapy? Or is it mostly medical? Just mostly medical. It was very clinical, but I was able to explore myself doing the real life test, which was standard at the time for two years. What should have been two years? Social transition. Yes. So then I had to get my employer involved. So he sent her a letter. They talked like it was totally fine with her. And your family, did you kind of disappear while you went through this phase or? No, my family has been on board since the beginning. Like I came out to my mom and when I was 18 and like, I was crying. I'm like, I'm like, oh no, I'm going to be like disowned, you know, like the boogeyman, LGBT people always say that your family's going to disown you if you come out. I have all my family. Nobody's disowned me or anything. Well, when you came out, uh, did you, what was the relationship between doing those ceremonies and sex segregation? Did you have to navigate that? Did, were you allowed? No, not, not until like, because I wasn't fully immersed into my culture during that time. Because like, I was just a teenager, like, well, I was 18. So I had all that angst and like, oh, the world is mine. Yeah. I could do whatever. So it wasn't until everything was said and done. And I'm like, oh, no, what did I do? Then I had to find, had to navigate my place as myself in my culture. And it's very interesting when you think about it. It's like I'm able to touch and touch and feed the sacred fire. And certain times women can't because of their moons. And... You're like, I'm able to cook with the women and then join the men after. Huh. And then, like, I'm able to hold both pipes, but I, I don't. So I just usually stick to the women and do what the women need to be doing. Most of the time, it's just it's silent. You're, you're doing things in silence. I'm like, well, I'm like, hello. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to talk to, to each other. Just whispering. And so when you begin your process of transition, are you turning into a woman? What's your mindset? Are you turning into a woman? Are you, I guess, disengaging from the male or what, what's the process? Well, to me, I'm feeling, I felt like I was becoming me, like the version that I was supposed to be. I don't, I don't know if it was a woman or just more of myself. And now even thinking about it, I don't even refer to myself as a woman. And Eva's noticed that. I'm like, I just want to be seen as Lois. When you're actually seen as an individual, as yourself, that means more than some social construct. Yeah. So your transition began with uh, a diagnosis of anxiety. And then uh, did you receive a diagnosis of uh, gender identity disorder, as it was called? Yes. And it was still, people don't understand that this was 2007. It was still classified as a mental disorder or a mental illness. And this is in Alberta, 2007. So if they can go back and look through the records, like that's what it was. 
And I was protected under the Mental Health Act. Protected how or from what? Or what do you mean protected? Well, because it was it was classified as a mental a mental illness or so then I, I was still protected under the Mental Health Act for people with mental illnesses and disorders. Protected from, I guess, uh, workplace discrimination? Exactly. Or? Okay. Yeah. All right. And then after that two-year social transition, what was the the course? Did you start popping the estrogen or what? No, uh, during, okay, so in 2007, that was the fall, I was put on testosterone blockers, my first appointment, because okay. he determines, like the doctor, like, you're real, you're a real person with gender identity disorder. You don't have to prove me because you're so feminine, all this stuff. I'm like, okay, then. So first appointment, I was put on testosterone blockers, spironolacto. How was and that then, for you? It was okay. It just, it was really minty. Like, I still remember that. Even if I have, like, minty gum, I'm like, it reminds me of that pill. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> but how did it, did it affect your mood or, I guess, even your smell? I mean, how did it interact with your physiology and your psychology? Honestly, it didn't it didn't do much like it was just to lower my testosterone but i was already like this effeminate male so it didn't do much we should broach the twitter uh the tweet storm uh that you evoked with your magical words uh i know well it was it had to do with um me saying i'm okay like i'm okay i'm fine like i'm tired but fine like i'm not mentally in a dark place like, I'm honestly no. fine. And then, like, so I did that tweet, like, I'll sit with you in your sadness. Um, but it, be, it won't be for long, I promise. Like, this is more about the people that are reaching out and feeling like, like I'm lost. Like, I'm not lost. Like, I'm here. You can articulate a conversation, like, stuff like that. And then that person's like, I'm so sorry. What happened to you and your people? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. A group I thought sorry. that was a good tweet. Yeah, I thought that was good because a lot of people seem to be coming to you with like their their own pain and sadness, you know, exactly uh, projecting a lot onto you. So I thought that was astute that you said that. Well, I'll sit with you, but I'm okay. You know, um, a lot of people have said that, which you can get into that your story is like really touching them, which is nice. Um, mm -hmm. But I do feel like there is some like wanting to be sad going on and sort of coming to you with that. You know, I know, like. It's I, I like it's not my burden, but I'll help you with yours. Huh, yeah. Like my DMs, every time I, I like, I just keep getting new, new ones. I'm like, I just, that's why I'm like, guys, I'm okay. I'm fine. You have to go into this being of sound mind, and which I am. Go into what? I'm fine. Into accessing medical assistance in dying. Okay. Yeah. And this is like the first time I'm actually having this conversation yeah. with Eva present because, you know, we're friends. We've been friends for a long time. So she has, we have like an emotional attachment. And then there's that, that, um, that at stake. So I'm like, whoa, like, this is like, I, like one day me and her are going to have to sit down and have that heart to heart conversation. Mm-hmm. And it breaks well, my heart thinking about what it's going to be like, because we've been friends for so long. 
Yeah. Well, that's why she's witnessing me. Yeah. Accessing that. See, I don't know your feelings, but it makes me sad to think about about it as because we we're attached to each other. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, I guess you you realize I am waiting for that one day. Like, I'm not. This is not something I'm gonna have a talk about through text or even exactly. um you know i'm not gonna i was waiting to meet you um don't and cry. i know <laughs> don't cry you're gonna make me cry i'm not <laughs> but i think and that's what i like though i think you understand that because mm-hmm. you brought it up and i i haven't said much because i'm waiting and i've told people like i'm not gonna have this conversation like this it has to be face to face to make my case or to or to you know just listen um, but that's I what I told I'm myself. I'm not going to cry. You can cry. No, but can... I, I don't want to cry. Okay. You don't have to either. I know. You can't. I, but... I, I, can, I will not succumb to that kind of queer pressure. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> Instead of peer pressure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll, have our, we'll have our talk. I mean, exactly. I'm glad that throughout this, it's getting kind of crazy for you. I'm glad that mm-hmm. we've kept it, um, that you can talk to me, that it's kind of light. Because exactly. then I don't I don't want to be yet another person who's coming to you with my own sadness, you know? Yeah. So. But see, with you and your sadness, we're, we're able to to work it out together because we have that emotional and investments in each other. And it's going to be yeah. glorious. Like, we get to see each other. Like, how we've always seen each other and how our friendship came together. It was just, like, cosmic magic. It was. I think so. Yeah, it's been really cool. Well, shortly, a few months after I got back and we reconnected, uh, you sent me, like, that sweet... Um, sorry, my cat is here. That sweet bird is hanging up there right now over my desk. Yeah. So, for now, we're just being there for each other and then when mm-hmm. we get a chance to talk in real life we will talk about the other stuff exactly what prompted you to write the tweet lois about uh accessing medical assistance and dying directly related well, to ha- your uh transition well it had to do with the government's decision the federal government's decision to look into made accessibility for those with mental illness as their only condition so i'm like okay i'm like it's, it made me rethink everything and because i was going to access it regardless under that condition but i don't know what that was up like uh, what was going on with that if it's still a go for March 23rd no March 17th of this year I don't know so then I'm opening a soda um so yeah so that happened but the tipping point for me was last year with trying to access health care in our province I remember that. Wasn't that when the doctor told you, like, oh, us women, this happens to yes. us? Or... We as women, we, not we as females, experience uh, vaginal atrophy. Yeah. And you were like, well, no, that's not, that's not my problem. Exactly. Like, I'm having something else because, like, my dilations hurt. I'm experiencing pain. Like, something's going on. And then it was more, more or less just brushed off. 
and then I had to do a second dilation in the week. So I was doing it on Sunday and Thursday. I'm like, that's just too much. And then like, I, well, I can't swim. It was just like, it was just way too much for me to do. And the pain wasn't subsiding. But then just one day it just went away. Huh. Oh, good. You're not hurting anymore? No, that was, but it was like three months of that intense pain. Right. And this is something that you'll have to keep doing, right? Is that you're like, you'll have to keep dilating. You can't just stop. Exactly. I have to do it for the rest of my life because I don't have an intimate partner. And that's another thing that got me mad too. But anyways, I don't have an intimate partner to help with that. And then that other doctor who re uh, labeled me from homosexual to asexual because I don't have a sexual partner at the moment. I was just thinking like, why? Because I'm not a whore. Wait, why do they need to label you? What does a doctor need I don't to know. Label? That doctor did that. Huh. At the Lois Hole Women, wait, Lois, the Lois Hole Hospital for Women's Health. We have a hospital named after, what is that, Lieutenant Governor General? I don't remember. She was an advocate for women's rights and issues. So they named a hospital after her. Lois Hole. And your name oh, is Lois. My hole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that, that hospital in my hole, I'm like, no, whoa. Well, it, isn't that, sorry, I didn't see the Tim Pool thing. So Tim Pool did a video on you. Isn't that something he kind of giggled about? The lowest Well, no, thing? he said it seriously, and I giggled. I'm like, oh, oh my okay. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. So this is how big the story has gotten, that the stupid Western Standard picked it up, didn't even contact Lois for a comment or a question. Like, like, yeah, they're allowed to write about this, but it's just not, there's no integrity there. Like, where's your journalistic mm -hmm. integrity? So they wrote a stupid story about it. It was badly written. It was just about your tweets. And then Tim Pool retweeted it and he made a comment and that brought it to over a million people. And then mm -hmm. Tim Pool also yesterday did like an 11 minute segment on it, you said? I couldn't watch it. I didn't want to watch it. I watched it, yes, 11 minutes and 40 seconds. I watched it. I just kept pausing it and cringing. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, so many people are talking about my vagina. Like, settle down. <laughs> Isn't it technically a vagina? Or no? A vagina? No. Sorry. I, I don't. We'll have to do a Twitter poll. Yeah, I guess. Oh, my God. No, we're, we're, we're playing with Lois Hole. Um. So why do you think that there's so much interest in this and what are people getting wrong and what's the correct way that you would have your story read? Well, I want it to be my twin, my pinned tweet where I'm like talking about myself instead they're just jumping to the end, the end result, like what I'm accessing. I'm more than just, you know, somebody who's going to die. Yeah, you want to talk about like also the like First Nations aspect of it, sort of how that relates to uh, First Nations and like sterilization and why that's such a big deal. The ongoing you, sterilization the ongoing. of First Nations people within right. Canada. Like it's out in the open. Everybody knows about this. Like it's every once in a while it's in the news. And it's not just the First Nations people that it, it has happened to. It has happened to um, people with disability, with disabilities. 
in Alberta. I think their lawsuit, their class action lawsuit, started in 2008 and ended in 2018 or 19. For those with uh, that were coerced and forced into sterilization because of a disability. It mostly impacted those with Down syndrome yeah. within our province. Okay. So your government has systemically, uh, chemically castrated uh, undesirables? Is that the exactly. proper term? Mm-hmm. Okay. Including uh, First Nations uh, natives and uh, Down syndromes and other people with mental uh, illnesses, disorders, or mm-hmm. uh, handicaps. Um, and how does that tie to you voluntarily uh, transitioning yourself? What's the, what's the connection there between? And is that happening? Well, is that prevalent? Is transition being put upon the First Nation people? Yes. There's yes. a doctor in BC with, what, over 400 uh, indigenous children that were in foster care. Yeah, because they're overrepresented in foster care. And he brags mm-hmm. about how he transitions kids in foster care, so you know a lot of them are indigenous. Oh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jesus. And then well, even, just like in ahead. Calgary Zone with the Metagender Clinic that accepts referrals from uh, school counselors. And also Calgary is surrounded by First Nations communities. And a lot of those First Nations communities call Calgary home. And then having their children in foster care in Calgary, what's going on? There was even like a tra- the trans youth can study by the doctor Greta Bauer, who is currently who was testifying against Amy Ham in her case. She ran this trans youth can study, and they followed like some youth. And I, what I thought was interesting, because they followed like over a hundred, maybe almost two hundred girls, were of course w- well overrepresented, like seventy nine percent to boys, but also Indigenous kids. I think don't quote me, like they made up a way overrepresented number. It was like fifteen or twenty percent versus their like two percent of the population. Mm-hmm. So that was crazy to see. Who are being transitioned you know. or who are pursuing yes, transition? Yes, who, who are accessing care at the 10 gender clinics in Canada who were being put on either puberty suppression or hormones. And they, they had a breakdown of, you know, the, the the girls, the boys, Indigenous, they had that kind of breakdown. And it was just so overrepresented. The girl numbers we knew and then in, that was for the Indigenous kids in Canada was kind of like showing what, what's obvious, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just like, why is this not concerning people, <laughs> you know? Well, because they're accessing their authentic selves uh, by expedient yeah. medical procedures. Yeah. But Lois, your story's a little different. You were mature. You were 18. You did this uh, with more or less a developed uh, person. I mean, you're more mature. Um, what was mm-hmm. your path towards access? And did your ethnicity have anything to do with it? Or Because it sounds like from what you told us, it was just kind of your state, your, your personal state it was yeah because it wasn't taken into consideration but that rush was i never finished the real life test and that rush happened because of funding cuts to the program and it wasn't just myself there was to be 20 to 50 other applicants that were trying to get surgery and that included uh, trans men too but i never met any trans men during like the clinics I will at the hospital. It was inpatient psychiatry. That's where we went. And how was uh, the idea of vaginoplasty introduced to you? Did you find that on your own and brought it up? Or did was it kind of just assumed from the get-go? It was assumed from the get-go. Okay. From so, you personally and the doctor or mostly the doctor? Where did it 
mostly the doctor. So like, you know, I'm becoming myself, like my authentic self and being like entrusting the doctor, having my best interests. And then but see, because of circumstances, if it, if that, the program didn't get their funding cut, you know, I think I would have been a different person today. You would have been given more time to think this through. Yes. So, uh, going back and, and you don't have to answer, go into this as far as you want to, but what was your idea of what you were getting? Was it sufficient to just have no genitals or was it, uh, necessary to have a facsimile of female genitals to complete the transition? Like what's your relationship to getting rid of, as opposed to something installed? Um, well, that was always the case. Like we didn't have back in my day where now we're overrepresented by non-sport individuals. And like back in my day, there was, it was always like male to female post-op. Like you get the full, the full experience, the full transition compared to now. Like there was, it was very rare. You would see on online groups, there was like maybe one or two that weren't seeking bottom surgery, but had to do black market estrogen to get black market estrogen and stuff like that. The yeah. 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 Because no doctor wanted to transition them, especially if they're going to keep their genitalia. Okay. And so what was your, how, how well, how do I say that? How educated were you about the consequences, about the risk factors, about uh, the potential, just like the lifetime of care that this uh, neovagina or vaginoplasty, however you want to talk about it, um, like how well informed were you by the doctor's? Um, I wasn't informed by the specialist, that, uh, Dr. Warnke. I wasn't informed about any of that until I got to Montreal. So, like, it was already paid for. Everything was set in stone. Like, you have oh. to do this. Okay. And then that's when I found out, like, oh, it's going to be a lifelong thing. Because I didn't know about the upkeep process or the maintenance for life from, like, going into it. Yeah. And uh, was it, so it wasn't brought up that you could just receive an orchiectomy or uh, like just have like no, a middle? No, because again, like it, or that, that stuff wasn't dealt with back then huh. because okay. it was like if you're accessing this, it's full because you have severe discomfort from your genitalia. Okay. Um, so it sounds like it, like to the, it just sounds kind of uneven, like the, the flippancy or the ease of access that you're given from something that's so major. It's like, this is a major exactly. medical thing. There's a lot of mm-hmm. moving parts down there. And was it done all in one fell swoop? You were uh, removed and then like the whole thing was just done in a day. Or yeah. Something? Like it's turned inside out. There's like that one uh, little clip I have on my account. It's like, you didn't have to cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but oh it's like Lord. just turned inside out. Okay. But if like I go like this, cover my nose and blow real hard, it's like a balloon animal that pops out. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> no. Yeah, if you go deep sea diving, don't come up too quick, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Everyone's going to get to see how funny you are. 
I know. It's great. I hope that they like from watching this that they know that I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys. Yeah. And so, how was the recovery for you? Like, that was a one day operation? It was. And then I couldn't stand or walk for 24 hours. Um, That was just part of it. Like, I had a catheter in. And then, and honestly, that clinic sucked because there was, it's in Montreal, they speak French there. So it was a lot of broken English. And I remember the day, the day after, uh, the day of my surgery, like I got wheeled back in to my room. I'm like, I need my glasses. And they're like, no, you need to rest. I'm like, I'm up. I need my glasses so I could see. I don't want to get a headache. And then, so that was that. And then the evening came and I called the nurse. I'm like, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to throw up. And she's like, well, how do you know? How do I know? It's my body. I know I'm going to throw up. So I landed up throwing up on myself. And then I wasn't changed until the next day. It was just real gross. And my, the person I shared the room with, her name was Christina. I'll always remember her. And I'm like, I was like crying. I was freaking out. I'm like, I can't. I'm like, like, I need to throw up. And these um, pressure cuffs, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they're called for blood pressure. They had these sleeves. Yeah. Well, they had the, these mechanical sleeves on my, on my legs for blood pressure, for blood flow. And I'm oh. like, I can't like, I'm having a panic attack. I'm like, talk to them. I'm like, can you speak French? And she said, yes. And so she started speaking French to them. And I'm like, I need these off. And like, I'm, I smell like throw up. And then they're like, we can't take it off. Well, she told, Hold her in French, and I'm like, I don't care. Call the surgeon. Tell him I want these these socks off. And then, so she did, and they were taken off. And then the next day, like we're because it was supposed to be like 24 hours after your your surgery, then you stand up and walk. You like you stand up and walk, and like. I didn't even wait for the, the nurses because it was time. There was a schedule for everything. So I got up and I started walking. I'm like, screw you guys. I'm, I'm doing this on my own. So I, I just walked. I'm like, I didn't care. Well, this was 13 years ago, you said? 14. 14 yeah. years. That clinic is awful. Um, they're the ones who did Jonathan Yaniv's surgery. <laughs> I know. Like, and that was so uh, gross. And they, he even shared it on Twitter. Oh, God. That's oh when I stopped. <laughs> That's, That's when I stopped too. following. I'm, like, I'm just saying I, the I standards. Someone like Yaniv is clearly just really mentally unwell, really. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the kind of person you're going to perform this surgery on. I yeah. I can't believe it. I know, I know someone here in Calgary, too, who should have never been approved he's a man he has very serious mental issues went to that clinic in montreal and it's just ruining his life like okay. it's just okay yeah. and uh lois as you as you get better what's your relationship to this change in your body um did it relieve the dysphoria did it uh you know, was it a net positive psychologically it, it it did, but then the regret. It was I. Then I experienced regret. But how long after the surgery did the regret kick in? Immediately, because I knew when I was 
at the bed and breakfast that I'm like, I, I, I can't go. I can't go. I, I don't want to do this. And even at the clinic, the day of the surgery, like, I was, I was so nervous. And they're like, don't worry. Like, this is, everyone feels like this, you know, because it's surgery. You get nervous before surgery. I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's what I'm experiencing is that the nerve. And then I don't want to do this because of the nerve. But I'm like, no, I don't want the surgery now. I'm not ready for it. But then it happened. So then it took me. So from 2009 until uh, 2018 to finally process it the way that I should have processed it all those years ago. Um, That's about eight years. No, nine, nine years. Nine years. How, uh, How was that process of processing? For you then was there denial uh like what mental state were you in over the that decade oh, i was like i was just up and down like that's when my chronic depression just set in like like what have i done and then i got more involved in my culture and i'm like oh my god like i added to a genocide like what have i done huh. and that still gets me i still i i cry about that i ugly cry about what have i done but most of the time, it's I'm okay to talk about it. And so, during that process of social transition uh, and then the gradual uh, medicalization of your body, did you have a counselor, a mentor, uh, a spiritual advisor, somebody who was listening to you, somebody who was grounding you during this process? No, I was I was by my by myself facing the world by myself with myself the hardest thing that i had to do was survive myself because like my relationship with my now ex-fiance fell apart too so then like the worst thing that could have happened was that i was left with myself i know so like good lord what did you do with yourself Threw yourself oh, into work. Just, well, see, I like I just spiraled into this deep, dark mental state. Like how, like how do you process what you've done? I even went back to the clinic to discuss that. Like I made a mistake, and he didn't know how to help me. The doctor who helped me transition didn't know how to help me. What did what did he say? Did he kind of punch his pilot, just kind of wash his hands of you, or what? Well, he said that it's very rare to regret. Like it was like one percent of the the transgender population that regretted it, and the only one that we knew of was one in Australia. Oh, and that was in two thousand nine. So I'm like, okay. Um, he's like, you'll get better. You'll accept. You'll accept yourself. Like. You should busy yourself. That was the only the only appointment that I had was in 2010 with him. Uh, until years later, when I'm like, okay, like this, it's getting out of hand. I'm like, I need to like be okay with my body. I'm still not okay, but I'm but I'm okay. Yeah. Did the uh, feeling of uh, dysphoria ebb and flow over that period of processing? Or was it no. something else? It no. was something else entirely. Yeah. 
it was just that like regret like how do you explain the regret without yeah like it was it's just this, like this deep regret and then with everything that happened to my people and continuing to happen to my people like what have i done i just became a statistic i allowed myself to become a statistic like it's bigger than me huh But then I found peace in 2018 with that, like, with that whole part, like, with that intense regret. But then that regret does creep up. Like, you can't fully heal it. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you unsterilize the Indian? What was the what was the process of of accepting and overcoming regret? What was it? Well, I ha like okay, so I did some meditation i did uh dbt i did emdr emdr helped me a lot with guided meditations afterward to allow myself to forgive myself for what of of how i treated myself during that process like after surgery you know i shouldn't have been so hard on myself i shouldn't have wished for me to like not wake up one day I just had to be kinder to myself as I am today. I am not yesterday. I am today and I am becoming tomorrow. So you just have to like understand like we're not that version of ourselves anymore. Mm -hmm. And why, so why, me a lot. why 2018? What was, what, what was like the fate the or destiny? Point. Yeah. Yeah. Point. Like it was just the breaking point of, for me. Like I couldn't live like this anymore. I couldn't, like stand in my skin anymore and how do you explain that to yourself other than the universe or to other people because that's all i had was the universe in the darkness to talk to i didn't have a therapist so it's just me in the darkness and then i finally like okay and I, I need a i need help was there like a some moment of humility that caused you no actually i felt i felt weak because like you know we're supposed to have it all together we're supposed to keep it together you know you like especially me if i'm going to be flawed it has to be flawed on the inside and not show on the outside so then i'm like i felt weak and loud because I'm like, okay, I'm at this real dark place and I have to ask for help. How do I ask for help? So then I talked to my doctor and then she said, go through the healing lodge, the, the native center. So I'm like, okay, well, and then that's where I met my psychologist and did all this amazing work. So then where does maids come into this medical assistance in dying? <clears throat> uh, because of the healthcare that, well, in recent years in the last couple of years like what it what it turned into because of the trans right activists i blame them i point the finger at them for the level of health care that i am receiving for it being so dehumanizing degrading and dismissive to somebody like me but then there's so much the what about the other post-ops in in our country what kind of healthcare are they receiving? It's not just myself. It's just 
it's it's bigger than me but then it's like well okay well i'm experiencing this within my province i shouldn't have to be going through three months of pain with with no referrals and instead of it just being we as females experience vaginal atrophy well no i need you to believe in biological realities here i'm not female and then, like, what does my pronouns have to do with an interaction that is one-on-one? Or what does my sexual, why do you get to redefine my sexuality? And then it's just, it's just, it's garbage. It's, it's too politically woke. It's an institution that's captured by gender identity ideology. Thank you, Eva. <laughs> and so you're you're not able to you're not engaged with doctors who can take you and your body seriously enough to pinpoint the problems going on as a result of what they I, did to your body where would i access that health care see like i'm coming from on reserve i have to go off reserve to access health care and then so many doctors are captured by the rainbow initiative i wish i hadn't written that down it's either the rainbow initiative or the trans health initiative so i'm like oh my goodness like where where do i actually see a doctor that believes in science that believes in reality because the first ones that i see are my primary doctors or an er doctor or ER nurse like do I go to a bigger city like how, which specialist do I see because I was referred to the gender clinic where it's just nonsense but is is just to push back a little bit is it not also participating in some form of genocide to submit to medical assistance and dying some sort of Oh, it's already happened. I, I already, uh, with genocide, I already contributed to it by becoming sterilized. Yeah. So there's nothing for me to add further to because I'm a sterilized Indian. So what happens to me, it's still going to, even if I die a natural death, I'm still a statistic. So why not go out on my own terms that I qualify for? I'm, yeah. So on your own terms, as opposed to what? Um... Living a long, boring life huh. with a, a high possibility of having the vaginus collapse with no help, no health care. So what, it collapses and I go to where the gender clinic to get reconstructive surgery. Like, why aren't I able to have preventative measures happen before that happens? Okay. Like, I'm doing everything that I can. I'm doing the maintenance required. And then, yes, something, something happened. I experienced depth loss, so I had to add a second dilation, which was extremely painful. But then I corrected itself one day, and I'm like, okay, I'm good for now, but where do I go next time? What um? And do we know wait, what happens that, when it collapses? But a collapse, yeah. but a collapse is how is the collapse 
gender affirming. I have so many questions I want to ask, like health professionals, and yeah. I get to when I when I do the process. Do what process? The made process. So once my application has been submitted, which will likely be next week. So on, oh, I'm on my phone. On the 25th. So after the 25th, my application should be submitted. I let them know. Then the official process begins. It's a 90. It's a 90 day process with their professional, with their assessment team. So I don't know what it looks like. I don't know who the doctors are or psychiatrists. So it starts. It's just a 90 day process. And then whatever after that, then the date could be picked. I can either opt out at any given time. There's no pressure. Nobody's pressuring me. This is just me, myself and I. Yeah. And then it's like so sad that, you know, that I'm like thinking of Eva. She's witnessing one of her friends. I'll get to talk oh, to better. you. <laughs> I know, I know. I'll talk you out of it. So. But like, even with my family, I'm like, this is my decision. There's like, like you just witness <clears throat> and, and let's make memories, you know? Huh. I want to make memories. You said long, boring life. Do you feel like you don't have anything to contribute? Uh, Beyond genetic reproduction? Is there... No, I would see if I had in Canada's woke culture. Good lord. You see how we're still we're still disenfranchised. Like as First Nations people. Unless we tell, you know, the the line. And plus, I don't want to get old. Who wants to get old? I'm going to be 35 this year. And good Lord, I'm turning, like, my face is going to be 25 again. Like it has been for the last 10 years. <laughs> you don't look 35. I know. It's because of magic. You know. I, I magic. <laughs> What's the difference between accessing maids and just doing it yourself? Is there a distinction? Uh, there one is suicide yeah suicide with uh, with without dignity and the other one is with the dignity and it could be performed by nurses injecting you so like you're not holding a button you could just allow them to administer the treatment then you go to the land of whatever and I believe in the afterlife, so I'm like, I want to see everything at once. Yeah. Well, I, I'm confused about the word dignity. What, what's more dignified uh, using a doctor rather than... Uh, well, because, like, you get to, like, drift off into sleep. Yeah. So instead of, like, harming yourself by cutting yourself or hanging yourself, like, and then having somebody find your body... Like, that's very traumatic for the people that are finding your body. Yeah, yeah, it is. So at least you're in a safe environment and you get to go on your terms. And I think my last breath is going to be saying, it's going to say, at least I wasn't trans. 
So Don't is there... you cry. Are you crying? Don't you cry. <laughs> I'm remembering something that happened three years ago. Just a terrible story. I don't, don't want to say it, but... Yeah. It happened to you? Uh, oh, a 15-year-old <laughs> that I know that her parents found her. And it, the anniversary just was a few days ago, so... I know it's hard. <laughs> Especially to go that way. And, like, even... Um, well, that's what happened last summer with my cousin she committed suicide after she was gang raped like that was intense and then now her family my cousins are seeking justice for her and the justice system's just so flawed it's just intense and then i wish there was just more resources for all even mental health, it's mostly outpatient. You see a psychologist, not even a psychiatrist. So how do you get on medication? How do you get on psychiatric medication without follow-ups? Is there uh, is there dignity in trying to fix the system rather than giving up with dignity? Where do we even begin to try to fix a system when the system is captured? Well, uh, you don't know for how long it'll be captured, and if more and more people check out, then there's less people resisting it. Uh, well, like see, if you see I'm a problem, using... if you see a problem, why not dedicate yourself to solving that, no matter how unlikely or improbable that solution is? Is there not dignity in dedicating your life to fixing the fucked up world? Well, that's what I've been doing for the last since. Wait, okay, that's six, five. Since, for the last five years, since 2016. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Seven years. Somebody do the math. It's seven years, right? Seven years. 16? Four plus two plus one. So seven, I guess. Seven. Something yeah, like that. seven years. I've been an advocate on change, on social change, and yet I forget the limitations that the color of my skin has. What what limitations are those? Being brown, being First Nations in Canada. Well, you, but you're articulate. To... When when you walk into a room, do you feel people ignore you or discredit you? When you walk into a room, when you start to talk to this people, whole trans like this whole trans debate, they'll find the uh, the most oppressed, and that's a white male. To speak on all issues, it's like this. Like their trans identity gives them the right to speak on all issues. And I think Eva can attest to that. The Montreal, yeah. Yeah, especially like the Montreal shooting and the guys they've had talking about it the past two years. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. They even get to speak on that. They even get to speak on women being shot. So... Because of advocacy, I started in 2016 with Dr. Warnicke because he wanted me to channel my regret into advocacy. So I started advocating for better transgender health care within our province of Alberta. So, like, my file was used, and yet it was white transgender activists that were allowed in the room and we just wanted um, 
things to be covered like breast augmentation and mastectomies to be covered. Like we had this whole list, but those are the only two that got covered. And so that was um, 2016. And then finally came into, into law or the bill was passed and came into effect on January 1st, 2019. I'm like, I helped do that, but yet the recognition doesn't fall on my shoulders. It's, it's the white trans people. And then my work, like even with Eva, she like knew about this whole thing within AHS. So I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to make a change while I'm here, but I have limitations because I'm not an oppressed white male. <laughs> well, you're getting more attention now. So. Exactly. For, for, like for, the wrong well, reason, for the wrong reasons. <laughs> I know. I know. Are you cognizant of the possibility that you accessing maids um, is going to uh, have some sort of impact? Are you aware of that? Are you in, in, is there any intention there that you're using maids to make a statement? No, it's, this is solely for myself and my decision. Like I'm, I have to pass the, uh, the assessment. So I'm not worried about how this is perceived or whatever. So, it's not a call for help. I'm not do trying you to do trust the doctors if they miss uh, if they mistreated you with regard to specifically your male genitals? Do you trust them to uh, assess you thoroughly, honestly, and accurately with regard well, to the eradication of your life? These are completely different uh, doctors for the team, the maid team. And so, yeah, I completely trust them. And again, like, I'm going to challenge them. How do you unsterilize the Indian? Like, I would like to know. Well, is there is there responsibility other than genetic responsibility for your tribe? Uh, collecting the stories, archiving, um, advocating? For sure, for sure. There's all of that. Yeah. And, like, you have nieces and nephews exactly it's like well okay like where do i belong as myself in my entirety with a future of crap health care that i've endured for way too long like when is enough enough if if they uh hypothetically said well we're not going to give you maids but we will um we'll fix this uh neo-vagina thing it won't be a problem anymore um is your life still worth it uh beyond that the that painful uh part of yourself but why do we need to fix it well i mean if it's if it's not structurally sound i mean if it's if it doesn't if it's going to atrophy or collapse at some point could they just take that out if if that is the seat of your discomfort and they resolve that is the rest of life does life just boil down to this one procedure, this one problem, this one persistent fear? Not the plethora of issues. I'm like, it's not just the vaginoplasty. It's that regret. It's the genocidal uh, addition. It's just, it's just a lot more than just a physical thing. 
but that physical thing is what qualifies me for MAID. So, okay, there's that too. The two issues. So, the maintenance for it, like it, you, you don't get cured for having from when you don't get cured from vaginoplasty. So, if you're a lifelong uh, patient, you're they can't delete services. it. I don't know exactly. anything about this. They can't delete you it. Can't, so if it collapses, you either have get a colon graft or they graft some skin and turn it inside out and all that stuff. I'm like, well, how many like surgeries? Like, when is like enough enough? Huh. In in your relationship, so there's a. I'm just trying. I'm trying to get a very deep understanding of your point of view. Um, so there, there's this uh, vaginoplasty problem. Uh, there's the, mm -hmm. and then there's systemic issues. There's issues exactly. with Canada, with history. Mm -hmm. um, something, this huge thing that you can't fix. Like why, why, why allow something like a system, a bureaucracy, dictate how you feel about life itself and your connection to the spirit or to your fate, your destiny? Why allow? How how do I, I just don't understand why you would let Canada, a flawed human organism, dictate your relationship to, to your time on Earth? I think it has to do with exactly that. Just everything just compounded into one thing. And then it's just like, okay, I, I give up. Like, yeah, like I give up. So now I have this like new fight in me. I'm like, okay, well, given the timeline, so next week on the 25th, my application should be completed. And then I submit it the same day. So I let them know the same day. And then the process begins. So 90 days. I'm not, I'm not guaranteed that it's going to happen after 90 days. Again, I can opt out at any given time. But then, like, it's just given me this, like, fight within me. It's like, okay, well, let's make this short time last. Let's make this impact. All I could do is ignite a spark within people. Those sparks grow. It can burn down a forest. Like, let's do this. Do what? Burn down what? Whatever needs being burned down. Okay. Gender ideology, uh, people being... Exactly, let's burn it down. Huh. I'm trying. Exactly, see? We're trying. Huh. And I, honestly, I would love to speak to uh, our premier. Yes. Uh, Justin Trudeau's not going to listen because he'll find the no. sadder, even no. more oppressed native than me. Probably someone white, a white male. <laughs> There's some of those that are pretending to be native. There are. There was exactly. uh, Gwen Benoit or whatever. Anyway, um, you should talk. To, if you would talk to Danielle, introduce me to Danielle. I'm a fan. Exactly. Our premiere. We should. We should be speaking like having these these conversations with our politicians, especially like knowing what we know within our province, Eva. Like. All I can do is use my story to the best of my ability to help spark conversation. Yeah. If if you're denied, are you going to reapply or go somewhere else until you get the result that you want? 
I'm not expecting to be denied, but if it happens, then I will contest it or petition it. If it has to go to higher levels of government or court, then so be it. Huh. You're going to fight to the death. Yeah. Well, I'm still doing everything else at the same time. Yeah. So facing death voluntarily, mm-hmm. um, what's, what's the priorities in life? How, how does life uh, prioritize itself? Um, so I have appointments. I make sure like my schedule, like, you know, I shared my schedule with you. Like that's how it looks for the foreseeable future. The weekends are reserved for family and me time. So self-help, self-care. So I'll do my face masks, stuff like that. Dilations. And then it's about making memories with my friends and family. Hmm. Because I don't want them to see me sad, like see or see a version of me that's sad. And nor do I want them to be crying all the time, like and regret that time that they wasted crying. When I'm gone, when I can no longer say, like, it's okay, I'm okay. Eva, do you have any questions? You better not cry. <laughs> she she ran off camera cry. when she was crying. She was very concerned. <laughs> I'm better now. Yeah. Oh, just just thought I. It's not going to happen anytime soon because we have a lot to do. Mm-hmm. So, and we're also going to meet, and I'm going to talk you out of this. So that's no worries. And uh, but I, I'm, I mean, I don't. Not to say that I control you, but be prepared for a plea. Um, but lots to do until then. So. Exactly. What do you want your legacy to be, Lois? How do you want to be remembered? Kind of a cheesy question, but... That's up to you people, the audience, the viewers, the witnesses. Yeah. You get to decide that. I'm not going to be around to decide that. Because I have a different legacy when it comes to my family and so what's the public legacy or what's going to be perceived as mine by the public that's not a me problem well i mean you don't want tim pool uh misconstruing your story um or the western standard whatever the the, the western other, standard or whatever we called. are going to work on something we are going to write a story yeah we're going to set the phone to record and just talk and then i'll exactly. write it up and then um what's that other thing so many people are like, you should write a book. I'm like, when do I have time to write? A- I don't even know how to ask my question, myself questions that need answering. <laughs> it's going to have to be an outside source that's asking questions so it could be written down. Well, you know, every every maid's application should come with a free ghostwriter, right? It should. That would be that's, fun. I would tell my neat. story of how it started in 1940s, Nazi-occupied Austria. Okay. And how that circumstance happened to get me here today i didn't get a chance to pick my grandparents but yet here i am Hmm. i was um telling tara last night i read your text and i was like look at this this is the beginning of an amazing story it started in 1940s in austria it's my grandpa and then he came over and i was like oh my goodness it's a very good story i know i would be well lois thank you for the opportunity to uh hear your story and question you and uh hopefully 
help be helpful in uh, filling out the narrative that people uh, have constructed out of uh, shards of insight uh, that they've mm-hmm. gained from you on Twitter. So thank you very much for the opportunity. And For sure. And thank you for having me. Like I even shave from the nose down just oh. in case I had to show my boo-boo. Well, here's your beard right here. You can't pluck Eva oh, yeah. out of your life, right? Thank so. you for also letting me tag along. This was about you, but uh, happy to be here. Yes, I'm so happy to finally actually have like a conversation longer than like an audio clip. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, we talk all the time, but this is still, this is way cooler. Exactly. It is. <laughs> With a imaginary audience to boot. Exactly. Oh right, I, I forgot. There's going to be an audience. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I will wrap it up now. Um, I'll link uh, links to your work. I guess just your twitters uh, right now at this point. Uh, Eva, did you ever start that Substack novelization of your uh, European heritage I... that you keep on teasing? Oh. I will be like I write for uh, the the distance now a Substack. Oh. I also still write for Gender Descent and I do stuff for Redux um, and Gays Against Groomers. But I will be starting a Substack when Lois and I can talk about her story. Okay. When we that will be like my first um, probably you know it's it's still being fleshed out. But to launch into my own thing will be probably telling people's stories starting with Lois. Okay. So. So yeah. you're going to be kind of a written version of my channel. It's like, like conversations, <laughs> but right, 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 written. I guess so. Well, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Kind of deep inside uh, biographical sketches of people's lives. Yeah. That's the plan. Yeah. We'll see okay. where it goes. Mine's an obituary. Oh god. <laughs> In a good way. I'll find like the most sexiest photo I have. And it could be that. I'll put it at the end. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you. All we didn't recording. even do introduction, but everyone's. Did you want to do an introduction? Because that saves me time. Oh, we can okay, save one now. Can, I'll put it at the beginning. Yours, and then Eva can do hers. And then okay. Oh, okay. So I'll do mine. Uh, hello, uh, hello, and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. 